From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Michael, if you look at the world economy today, what do you think people are most actively discussing? What topic? I mean, I think everyone has a different lens on it, but you know, given my interest in technology, a lot of people are still talking about how technology is continuing to change our world and the dynamics of the economy. But beyond that, I guess the big question on everybody's minds is what's happening with globalization? Are we entering a new era of decoupling or atomizing into more powerful regional blocks or something else? I think that's spot on. And that's why I'm so excited that we have a leading trade economist as our guest today. I mean, it couldn't be a better time to talk about trade. And actually, he has his own podcast on trade, which is really very well known. Well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing this conversation. Welcome to our podcast, Chad. Thanks for having me. So we like to start with a little bit about you. Where were you raised and how did you come to be an economist? I grew up in a very small town in New England, so in rural northwestern Connecticut. We got our first traffic light, I think, my senior year of high school, so extraordinarily small town. And with the exception of one year when when I was 11 years old, my family moved to the UK. But aside from that, basically, I just grew up in this tiny town. I went to a small liberal arts college for university, my undergraduate. And there I had really good professors and fell in love with economics and decided that I wanted to be initially an economics professor when I grew up. When I went to graduate school, then I fell in love with research. I really had decided that trade was going to be the thing that I wanted to to study. It was primarily because I thought trade was really hard. I didn't understand it as I was studying it. So I thought, hey, you know, this is something I could spend my life trying to figure out. And that's basically what I've been trying to do since, is spent my life trying to figure out international trade. Why is trade so hard? Well, the the thing that I really spend my time thinking about is actually less about why countries trade and more about governments and when it is that they can and can't get along. So when it is that countries can cooperate and when it is that they have to fight about things, when they negotiate, when they when they dispute. And so I really focus on the intersection of cooperation and, and fighting. And for me, I mean, that's where all the action is. But, you know, I think it's really governments have incentives to do things that are in their unilateral self-interest, but it is kind of not good for the world globally. And so, you know, the initial time that this really came up was in the 1930s. You know, the United States did the Smoot-Hawley tariff, the rest of the world retaliated, and there were all these beggar thy neighbor policies. And it was really kind of recognition that from there, that if we all stopped doing this to each other, we could all be better off. And that then led to, you know, ultimately the creation of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, after the, the Second World War, the first kind of multilateral trade agreement, where countries agreed to take on commitments not to do certain things like tariffs toward each other, if their trading partners would also agree to do the same thing. And we still have kind of domestic political pressures and sometimes economic pressures to want to do things like tariffs, but we're involved in these trade agreements where we all sort of agree not to. And that's kind of what I've spent my entire life trying to figure out. When those types of challenges break down, when governments really are overcome by the need to to kind of break the rules that they've signed up to, and things like that. 
very relevant, of course, to now. But I mean, you were quite prescient, weren't you, to see that trade was highly political, an arm of politics, if you like. Well, the funny thing for me was when I was doing my undergraduate studies and then my PhD, it was in the mid-1990s. And so here in the United States, this was coming off of the major conflict at the time between the United States and Japan. So we had trade wars back then over steel, semiconductors, cars, right? What you learn is the industries never go away. They're, 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 they're the same ones we're fighting about today, just maybe different countries. But what happened is, so I studied all that stuff. I wrote my dissertation about all that stuff, learned about all the laws that were being used to implement all kinds of crazy, exciting trade policies at the time. But then what happened is governments stopped using those policies for the most part. The United States then became very quiet with its active trade policy from, you know, say the, the late 1990s through 2016, through the election of, of Donald Trump. So all of the human capital that I had built up in graduate school about trade disputes and governments fighting and all these trade laws then disappeared for 20 years. So I wouldn't say it was prescient. It was basically, I was, I think, the last one who studied that stuff in graduate school before governments stopped doing it. And as the last one who who had um, bothered to learn that stuff when governments started doing it again, 2016, 2017 or so, I was the last one who had learned it. And so I was first up to try to remind the world about what those laws and policies were and when it was that the, the, we had, the last time that we had seen them actually being used. And now you've hit, you know, prime time, as it were. We are in now a very contentious period in terms of trade. How contentious is it in, in, in your experience, in history of what you've studied? Well, I think this is certainly a, the most exciting, contentious, uncertain time when it, when it comes to trade, trade policy, certainly in my lifetime. And I just had one of those big round number half century birthdays. And so I've been around for a fairly long period of time. You know, I think there, there is a debate about, you know, how disruptive are some of the policy actions that we're going to see today relative to, say, you know, the 1930s, when we did have those, you, you know, Smoot-Hawley tariffs that were very high in the United States. Other governments responded by retaliating, forming trade blocks of their own. Obviously, we had a world war. So, you know, I think we're still pretty far away from that, though there's a lot of things happening both in terms of policy actions on the ground, but then a lot happening in terms of geopolitics as well, where, you know, who's to say what the world is going to look like five, 10 years from now? So what I've learned over the last couple of years is I'm not good at predicting where things are, are, are necessarily going to go, but it definitely is certainly an exciting time to be working at the in the area of, of international trade policy. So the, the big question everybody's asking at the moment, and, and we ourselves had a stab at it in a, in a recent report that we've just written, is, is the world deglobalizing or not? So what's your take on that? It's complicated. There's definitely something happening. I think trying to figure out exactly what is happening and how it's happening, it's still too early to say. De-globalization, I, I think, first of all, for me as an economist, I would want to be precise with first defining what it is that we mean by that. If de-globalization means doing more stuff at home, maybe, 
But I don't think that the evidence is necessarily there to support that yet. If deglobalization means less non-discriminatory trade policies, so, you know, most all the major economies of the world are members of the World Trade Organization. And one of the fundamental rules, pillars of the World Trade, Trade Organization is the most favored nation, MFN rule. You're supposed to apply non-discriminatory policy, basically the same tariffs toward everyone. Well, that is now changing. And we saw that, you know, really beginning to change in 2018, 2019, in the context of the U.S.-China trade war, where those two countries went from having, you know, tariffs toward each other that were the non-discriminatory types that they applied toward trading partners in the rest of the world. U.S. toward China was about 3%. China toward, toward the U.S. was about 8%. Well, nowadays, those countries are applying tariffs on the order of 20, 21% toward each other. Toward everyone else, they're still in the three to you know eight percent range, so still relatively low, but they're very much applying discriminatory trade policies, tariffs toward one another. With the conflict, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we have seen not only financial sanctions, but a number of countries, the United States, EU, UK, Canada, the G7, applying much higher tariffs against Russia. So discriminating, you know, essentially breaking one of the central tenets of the, of the WTO system. Now, for good reason, obviously. But so if that is what we mean by deglobalization, meaning applying, no longer applying non-discriminatory policies toward each other, trying to shape economic activity for non-economic reasons, say, I do think some of that is, is going on. At the end of all of that, we still may have, you know, just as much trade as we had before, just as much, you know, cross-border movement of, of goods and services, but the patterns of that may look fundamentally different than the way it was before all of this new stuff started happening over the last four or five years. Yes, I mean, our, our research found that there was not a single major region in the world that didn't rely on some other region for at least one quarter of you know, something big that they need. So the world is in incredibly interdependent. And so what decoupling you see is going to be maybe take time or be a change of pattern, etc. The other thing we figure is that policy is, as you say, coming much more into the frame, and that changes the patterns of trade. So I think that is one thing that, that we agree on. Why is there such a focus beyond the obvious of US-China? Is it broader than that? Is the tension broader than that? Well, I think it's important, first of all, to figure out what the source of the tension is in the U.S.-China relationship, and then, you know, maybe talk about how that spills over to other countries being drawn in and why they might need to be drawn in or they could stay out of it. So I think there's there's a multiple set of reasons why there were these tensions. One is because they're very different economic systems. You know, even before the recent geopolitical tensions have escalated between the two, it had become clear that there were new challenges with the way China was engaging with the world. China, you know, a very non-market-oriented system, large state-owned enterprises, these five-year plans, industrial policy that is just very, very different from the historical, you know, sort of economic framework that the United States, countries in Europe, Canada, Japan, Australia, more market-oriented economies were structuring 
their economic activity. And it became increasingly untenable to have those two different types of systems under the same tent in in the WTO. The WTO really wasn't designed as a trade agreement, as a set of international rules, really to accommodate the special nature of non-market economies. And that was okay when the non-market economy may have been, you know, relatively small, uh, but as it becomes bigger and bigger and generates more and more externalities for trading partners, meaning China does things either through its own policies or through its economic activities that really do spill over and change things in other countries, well, then other countries begin to get nervous and they begin to wonder, well, what new tools do we need? Is the system well-designed to protect our interests? Is it fair? That was one fundamental point of contention that will ultimately need to you know, be addressed and dealt with if ever we can get past the geopolitical tensions. But then, of course, the second part is the geopolitical tensions. And China has become much more assertive, not only economically, but in terms of its, you know, foreign policy, military aspirations in its region and globally. And that's raised other concerns that have started to, you know, raise questions for policymakers in the United States, but I think increasingly in other capitals around the world as well, in Europe and certainly in its neighbors in, in, in Asia there, what do we need to do to sort of protect ourselves from potential national security types of concerns? And combine that with what we, again, have seen with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the weaponization by Russia of energy supplies into Europe, revealing vulnerabilities and exposure of becoming interdependent with certain trading partners has really heightened the concern and and made countries wonder, well, similarly with China, where is it that we're so interdependent that we could then uh, be vulnerable to, you know, having decisions to cut off trade flows or otherwise impact trade flows really hurt us either economically, militarily, technology, in any case, it's raised a whole host of, 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 of new questions that I really do think governments are still trying to sort out. But I think part of the policy actions that you're seeing take place now are, are best seen through that lens. You know, there are very legitimate security, military concerns out there that are, that are starting to drive some of the policy decisions that we're actually seeing. And obviously, we're, we're beginning to see resilience be a, a big theme. If you suddenly can't get your energy, if you suddenly can't get your wheat and you realise how interdependent you are, then you have to change the game on that interdependence. What are you seeing, not just from policy, but, but practically with companies as well, as they try to protect themselves from that kind of dependency? Well, I do think it's important to talk about the companies, but I think it's also important to talk about the policy because companies respond to the policy environment that's put in front of them. Arguably, many of the dependencies that have arisen make complete economic sense when you think about the policy environment that the companies were presented with. Companies, their job is to you know, reduce costs and provide goods and services to consumers for as low a price you know, as, as, as sort of possible 
And if governments reduce trade barriers and make it seem as though relations, trade relations with trading partners are secure, reduce uncertainty, well, then it makes sense for companies to make big investments and build supply chains to, to try to reduce those costs. Now, I think what we have seen happen is you do, at the end of the day, have certain types of goods where you do have really geographically concentrated sources of supply. Now, as we saw with the Europe Energy case, that was in Russia. But there's other examples, and not all of them are with, you know, countries of concern. Another one that we have seen is the semiconductor story, and high-end semiconductors in particular. For the United States, globally, the main source of high-end semiconductors, the, the fastest, fanciest chips, are essentially Taiwan and South Korea, companies like TSMC and Samsung produce the vast majority of high-end semiconductors. For the United States, those are not countries or entities of concern, right? Those are places that are friends, allies. And yet, it doesn't make a lot of sense in a, in a new world where we have not just geopolitical shocks and concerns, but you've got pandemics and you've got climate-induced shocks. So whether that's uh, incredible storms, floods, droughts, it really doesn't make sense to have incredibly co geographically concentrated sources of supply, even though those may be incredibly economically efficient and may be the result of very good economic policies, which led firms to you know, achieve economies of scale and build out really impressive supply chains. But we now may live in a world where that's just not what's best for the world. To get companies to change their behavior, probably you need to induce that with policy. And so the policies that we're now seeing these days are things like subsidies. So in the United States, industrial policy, the CHIPS Act, in, in trying to shift some of that location of production out of East Asia, even though it's with our friends in East Asia, to either the United States, to Japan. Japan has been subsidizing as well. The European Union is talking about its own CHIPS Act. Maybe some of that production will move out of East Asia to those to countries in Europe as well. For all those reasons, I think from a, an American's perspective, that would be beneficial. Additional geographic diversification could ultimately be beneficial. Now, it may end up being more costly. There are massive economies of scale of having all of that production, you know, locally, locally sourced there in Taiwan or in, in South Korea. And provided nothing ever goes wrong, then great. But the concern is we now live in a world where we're more likely to be exposed to things that could go wrong. And we have to plan for that accordingly. And we have to convince the companies to do more for their supply chains. And some of that likely needs to come about through policy. You've just described beautifully the uh, two-sided uh, coin of concentration. It delivers efficiency. But if things start to get turbulent and difficult, you're at risk. There are some goods that are needed for, say, the net zero transition, some minerals, key minerals that really are only found in, in certain places and could be found in other places, but there's a lot of money and investment that would need to go into diversifying those sources of production, refined in even fewer places at the moment. How do you see that playing out in the years ahead? A good example of this is, you know, what's taking place right now with vehicles and the batteries that go into electric vehicles and the critical minerals and components 
that are essential in in the supply you know the supply chains for those that are essential for for batteries. Now, what's fascinating is the if you look at the details of the recent piece of U.S. legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, that is trying to do many many things in that space. First and most important, obviously, is to try to encourage American consumers to shift away from internal combustion engine vehicles and start buying electric vehicles. And so they do that through these consumption subsidies, through through consumer tax credits. But as part of that, what they have also done is to say there are additional um, tax credits available for electric vehicles that have batteries where the batteries have supply chains that essentially don't run through China. So that exactly address the point that you just made. The source of geographic concentration in that particular instance is, is mostly China. So the big question is, well, how does that happen? There, we'll see. The policy goal is laudable from the U.S. government. It's trying to get firms to diversify, to create an additional supply chain so that they don't themselves become too reliant on just one source for, for these, these critical inputs. But how it is that they're going to get there, are the tax credits going to be enough, I think is not yet clear. Now, are there other policies that the United States could do? Well, the first thing it could do would be to try to coordinate with other countries and other governments who have very similar concerns and try to encourage them to do something similar and perhaps share the costs of some of these massive new investments in supply chains for either new mines, new refining capacity. One of the reasons why this has ended up historically in China is these are very environmentally challenging products to produce. And China may have a greater tolerance for the environmental degradation and the pollution that comes out of these refining processes than do, you know, the United States or Canada or Europe. Well, we need to figure out how to deal with that and either just accept the fact that in order to refine those types of minerals in in an environmentally safe way, it's just going to be more costly and accept that and be willing to pay those costs that's probably what we ultimately need to have happen. But how you get there, I don't know. Where is that refining capacity? Who's going to be willing to do it? What country? Who is going to be willing to pay for it? Now, the, the good news is you don't need to have every single other country have their own supply chain at the end of this thing, right? You don't need both the United States, Canada, the UK, France, Germany, Japan, Italy. Have, we don't need 10 different EV supply chains, battery supply chains coming out of this. But if we don't coordinate we may end up with none. So how it is that we get there, I think is still to be determined. What's happening right now between governments is a messy process where they're hopefully talking about how to figure that out. But along the way, they're getting upset with one another about various policies and incentives that they're each generating. And so they're not yet at the stage of ultimately cooperating. (laughs) So we're far away from where we need to end up being and how it is that we're going to end get to that end point, I think, is still to be determined. Are you seeing the same movement in that direction in other countries outside the US? I mean, obviously, you know the US very well. It's your home country. But are you seeing it elsewhere, say, say in Europe, in other you know, large advanced economies? I think Europe is really struggling at the moment. Um, they really do want to continue to adhere to non-discrimination, WTO rules, and the existing set of principles out there. I think some of what the United States has done 
has forced them to have to rethink that. The key question for Europe is, do they agree with the United States on some of the underlying challenges? So the reason why we might want to deviate from basic rules, the basic WTO rules in just this instance, do they agree for, for example, critical minerals and you know components for batteries and electric vehicles that having a supply chain that is mostly going through China is a problem, a challenge, and are they willing to utilize discriminatory policies that might break the WTO rules in a way that they wouldn't otherwise in order to achieve a diversification objective there? That's a question for Europe, or maybe equivalently, will they be pushed due to the Americans' actions on subsidies for things like electric vehicles and these discriminatory local content requirements of those to do something similar themselves? That's sort of where we are. There's there's definitely political pressure heading in that direction. I think the key question is, is, is that where we're going to end up or is that sort of a bargaining chip? And are they now talking with the Americans, trying to get the Americans to rein in some of the discriminatory aspects of their policies, say for electric vehicles, make them slightly less discriminatory, more open to Europe and other friends, allies, you know, trusted trading partners. And then they won't feel the need to go down that path themselves. But I think these are the key questions that these other countries are, are now grappling with. And this is an important moment for the trading system and, and the countries that are trying to adhere to the rules and to, to, to kind of see how slippery this slope is is going to get. I mean, with all that in mind, one incentive to sort of keep the keep the multilateral trading system together is simply that letting it fall apart is extraordinarily costly. Do you have a sense in your mind about how costly it could be? Well, I think it's really costly for the smaller and less powerful economies out there in the world. They're the ones, because they don't have the ability to, you know, credibly threaten, impose huge costs on the United States or Europe or something with with tariffs, they really do rely on a rules-based system, lots of predictability, lots of certainty. And if the rules-based system disappears, if it's replaced with something else that don't have those features to it, then I think they could stand to lose. Now, I am heartened by the fact that despite the fact that we really haven't had a functioning dispute settlement system, for example, under the World Trade Organization for three or four years now, you know, this is the the U.S. has refused to appoint new members to this thing called the appellate body, right? The, the, the appeals process in the WTO, which basically means that any country can thwart a legal ruling. There's no more legal certainty anymore, so why bother bringing a, a dispute in the first place? Well, you could see how that could plausibly unravel. If I know I can't be challenged through a dispute, then I could start to do bad things. So far, most countries haven't gone down that path. And so far, most countries you know, are, seem to be following the, the standard rules to the game. I, I'm worried that that sometime could change. You know, maybe what, what happens is you elect a political leader that is much more nationalist, or you, you know, go through some massive shock, though I, I'm, you know, I'm heartened by the, the pandemic, which is a pretty big shock that we all went through. The system didn't unravel at that stage, but other kinds of shocks could, could happen, which could put pressure on, on governments to, to start acting differently. 
So we haven't seen it yet, but those are the countries that I would be most worried about is not being able to sort of stand up for themselves that they, they, they benefit from the, you know, the, the existing system the most. The bigger countries, United States, Europe, China, are ultimately going to need to sit down, come up with some new rules, some new systems that allow them to get along with each other. So they need to figure it out, whether they'll figure it out inside the WTO, outside the WTO, I think is to be seen. There, I think these days, it's much more reliant on the question of geopolitics and can they even for political reasons be seen as, you know, getting, getting it, be seen getting in the room together and negotiating constructively about anything. I mean, put it, put it in terms of, you know, human lives. I know that you have talked about the tragedy of vaccine nationalism. And we all saw that. What other tragedies could happen to humanity because of a lack of cooperation over trade? Well, I, I think the biggest one is on climate. There, it's clear, like the pandemic, global health, the, the climate challenge is a global challenge. It's you know a global externality. The United States couldn't tackle it by itself, even if it wanted to or had the will to politically. Europe can't do so either, and, and neither can China. And some of the most vulnerable countries most quickly because of the climate crisis are the poorest economies. They're the ones that are going to be impacted and, you know, hundreds of millions of people impacted most quickly. And they sort of have the least power to do anything about it. So I think that's a really, really big concern the lack of cooperation on anything at the moment. You know, trade is just one piece of this, but there's very little international cooperation on, on anything. There's certainly not cooperation on global public health. But I think climate, yes, governments do get together periodically, and but they're not making nearly as much progress as they could be and they should be if they were really, you know, engaged and, and really seeking to work together and putting all of their other baggage to the side and really thinking about humanity, certainly. We've talked a lot about trade policy, but, and in, in this rather febrile situation and very uncertain times, do you have something in your mind that would fix the situation? The big concern that I have is that Trade policy nowadays is oftentimes being siloed in a bucket over here while other folks are talking about a bucket over here, which may be national security, and the third set of folks are dealing with a bucket over here, which may be climate. And in reality, we need to put all of those things together and think about them in a, in a combined fashion, if for no other reason, that there's so much overlap between those things when it comes to global public goods, global externalities, humanity. And so right now, a lot of the conversations about trade are taking place between amazing people, very sharp people, but oftentimes folks that are very focused on the technical details of things looking at it through their lens only of maybe what an existing WTO provision says, whether or not, not thinking at all about whether that makes sense, given the current geopolitical, climate, security, pandemic, health, whatever, challenges that are most important 
right at this moment in time, both in the short term and in the long term. And so that's my concern, is that we we all need to kind of step back and think a little bit more broadly and wonder why it is that we're doing this. And we don't do trade for trade's sake, right? The goal isn't to maximize trade in the world. It really isn't even kind of to maximize economic efficiency, though as a economist, it doesn't pain me to, to say that. Really, we're seeing, we should see this as part of a bigger picture. And really, we should see how we can use trade in a way that can enhance cooperation in the, in the areas where we really need it for sustainability reasons. And there I'm talking about, obviously, climate and public health and, you know, increasingly national security and global security as well. One slightly more specific question and uh, is services trade. I mean, everybody thinks of trade as still as goods, products, but increasingly trade is about data and intangibles and services and knowledge and ideas and people. How do you see that developing? Could that develop on a different track to the products? Could that just continue to do well whereas product trade becomes a, a more subject to strategic interest? It could. And I think we have seen that for the most part, right, with the exception of the pandemic, when we saw, because of mobility restrictions, some particular parts of services trade just got completely shut down, you know, whether we're talking about business travel, tourism, those kinds of things. Now, at the same time, the ability to kind of do remote work from everywhere in the world, Zoom from anywhere in the world, opened up new opportunities. And so I think there there is definitely a, a bright future there. I think, though, there does need to be a bit more public education about services. Right now, still in the domestic political economy context, as you, I think, put it well, all anybody ever cares about and all policymakers ever talk about is trade in goods. Part of that is because they think the services economy, when people think services, they think retail, they think, you know, in developing countries, the informal sector, low quality jobs, quote unquote. So partly what we need to do, I think, is rebrand services to make it seem sexier somehow so that it's clear that in a lot of places that we're talking about, these are actually high-value-added parts of the economy. It's not bad to move from a manufacturing job to this kind of services job, to this kind of services sector. It's actually better for you. It's you know got a brighter future for you. It's more exciting. It's more interesting. It's, maybe it's safer. I don't mean to put it so crudely as to say that it just needs to be rebranding, but I do think the public really doesn't understand a lot about services, certainly services trade. And a lot of that just comes back to data. Trade in goods is something that we have really amazing data for, and we can track and see and measure really, really precisely. Whereas trade in services, you've done an amazing job at McKinsey over the over the years trying to shed increasing light on that, trying to explain through data what's actually been happening. But I think for the broader public, it's much harder for them to see it. And until we can kind of make the case with them through data, that may continue. I cannot stop talking to you without mentioning your podcast. You have a trade talks fleece on, and it makes me jealous because I want a forward thinking one. But tell me 
why did you start your podcast and what do you love about it? Well, there were essentially, I think, three reasons why Samea Keynes and I started the Trade Talks podcast back in, in 2017. And Samea, for anybody who doesn't know her, she's a journalist and a writer at The, at the Economist. We started it at the time partially because this was the height of the trade war or the beginnings of the ramp up of the trade war, I guess I should say. And one, I personally needed something to kind of get my creative juices out when there was so much negative stuff happening in my world, so much really bad trade policy stuff that was happening. A podcast was a way to be creative and, and sort of positive. Second was actually pure efficiency. There was so much going on at that moment in time. I work at a think tank, and part of your job at a think tank is to explain to the public what's happening. And explaining to the public oftentimes means speaking with journalists and explaining things to them. And what the Trump administration was doing was so new and so different. There was so much explaining that had to happen. I literally could have spent 10 hours every day with different journalists explaining what was going on. And so I thought a more efficient way to do that would be to, to do it once a week as a podcast. But then the third thing, honestly, was, was Samea. She is absolutely just amazing. And she really taught me everything that, that I know about podcasting. And unfortunately, a year ago, she had to stop doing trade talks with me. Her beat at The Economist shifted. She now covers the British economy, no longer covers trade. So I'm off doing it by myself. But hopefully, I've been able to take some of the lessons that she taught me over our years together and have continued to do a, a reasonably okay job trying to explain trade to the world. What would you have done if you hadn't been an economist and a trade economist? Wow. I've wanted to be a trade economist for so long that I honestly haven't thought about that question. <laughs> honestly, trade is unfortunately, for my wife, certainly, kind of all I think about. And I think about it way too much, but it just, it fascinates me to such a great extent that I have a hard time thinking about anything else. I mean, I wanted to be a professional basketball player when I was in high school, and that was probably the last time I ever thought about a career outside of being a trade economist. Um, and I imagined myself playing for the Boston Celtics, you know, with Larry Bird. So I, I have the height. I'm, I'm relatively awkwardly, geekly tall, but unfortunately, none of the rest of the skills that you need to actually be able to play basketball effectively. <laughs> and finally, if you had one piece of advice for the listeners to our podcast, what would it be? Never forget that trade is super complicated. And please don't try to oversimplify it. Trade is nuanced. There are hugely positive things associated with trade, but there also are negative things associated with trade and unintended consequences. And any positive trade and any policy change has winners and losers. I think as trade geeks, we lose credibility when we only talk about the positive, the upside parts of trade. And I understand why we do it, right? There's so much negativity about trade that sometimes we feel as though we need to overdo it. But I do think in the long run that ends up hurting us in our credibility. And I think it's better for us to be honest and really to explain to the world that indeed trade is complicated. Thanks very much, Chad. It's been absolutely fascinating. And, and what a time to speak to a leading trade economist. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. 
If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chuli. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.